0: Judges chapter 8 and 9. If you would join me one more time in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you needy and earnest. We desire, O Lord, to behold your glory. So we pray by the power of your Spirit that you would shine into our hearts from the pages of Scripture and cause us to behold your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, our King. And that we would be moved by the sight to faith and obedience in Him. In Jesus' name, Amen. Some uh, months ago, my family was faced with a puzzling situation. In our living room, there emerged this very unpleasant odor, smell, and we had no idea what it was or where it was coming from. So the other strange part of the smell was you walk three steps and the smell goes away, and then you walk two steps in this direction and then you can smell it again. So we were searching all over. I wondered if some critter or creature had got in somehow and died somewhere. We wondered if we had spilled something, cleaned the floors. We cleaned the dining table. You know, kids sometimes will spill milk or whatever. But it was all cleaned, and we still couldn't find it. And then we managed to kind of isolate. It's coming from around this dining table, but we've cleaned it many times. What's going on? And then my brilliant wife finally realized, actually our dining table opens up. And so we pulled it apart, and lo and behold, we found out why this place was smelling so bad. Uh, One of the kids had spilled their milk uh, a few weeks ago, maybe a few days ago, and the milk had gone between the uh, crevices there and into the second layer of the table and had dried up there and was spoiled. Milk is a good thing, but when it goes bad, oh my gosh, it's disgusting. It's kind of like what we see with Gideon's life. Gideon started out his life really good. Uh, If you were here last week, we saw the first part of Gideon's story. If you missed that sermon, you can go find it online. Gideon was a timid fearful man but God called him and appointed him and anointed him to be Israel's savior and his faith was wavering all the way he was kind of fearful and uncertain for quite some time but then when it counted when push came to shove Gideon trusted the Lord And he went out with 300 people for what seemed like a crazy battle strategy, 300 against 135,000. And they won a glorious victory by God's grace and God's power. But then Gideon, even though he starts out good, goes bad. And his spoilage and his lapse into Bad, self-seeking leadership brings devastating consequences. You see, friends, authority is God's good gift. It's a gift from God to His people. Authority is. And when leaders lead faithfully in the fear of God, authority is life-giving. People grow People flourish, they thrive for the glory of God. But when authority is misused and abused, when leaders are self-seeking and self-serving, they use their power to serve themselves, then authority becomes destructive. It brings division and devastation to those under it. And that's what we'll see as we look at the end of Gideon's story And then the story of his son, Abimelech. These chapters in Judges 8 and 9 warn us. We should be alert to the dangers of self-seeking, self-serving leaders. And we should be sobered by the proclivities of our own hearts to depart from the Lord. As we look at the story of Gideon and then his son, we're going to see four marks of bad leaders. Four marks of bad leaders. We'll see these play out in the life of Gideon and his son. I want to be clear, though. It's not just leaders who are prone to these. These are dangers for every single one of us. First mark of a bad leader. Smooth talk. Smooth talk. And we pick it up in chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. We're continuing from last week, remember. This is now the second stage of the battle. Right. So last week we saw Gideon uh, adopts this battle strategy. The the Lord whittles down, culls down the army to 300 men because God says, the glory must be mine. And if you have too many men with you, then you'll boast that your hand had the victory. So God reduces the army to 300. They stand with these empty jars with torches inside, right? And then they have trumpets in the other hand. And then they blow the trumpets and they yell loudly. And then the whole Midianite army for 135,000 is thrown into confusion. They draw their swords on each other. And there's a glorious victory. These guys, 300, come rushing in. And the Midianite army... Runs away and along the way Gideon calls other Israelites to help him. They put these people to flight. They capture the Midianite princes or commanders, these guys named Oreb and Zeb. And now he's still in pursuit. And along the way, this people from this tribe of Ephraim, they had already joined him. They'd helped him capture Oreb and Zeb. They have something to say. Chapter 8 verse 1. The men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. You see, he didn't call them when he went out to battle. He's called them now, right in the middle of the battle. And they're angry. Why didn't you call us? They accused Gideon fiercely. You see, we're seeing some of the issues in Israel now, aren't we? These fractures and divisions among the people of God. The, 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 the troubles of disunity that we saw earlier in Judges. You remember chapter 4 and chapter 5 when Deborah and Barak went to war? The people did not all come out. There are these divisions within the people of God. And you see that among these people, the people of Ephraim. These men of Ephraim, they're self-centered They're divisive and factious. They're so easily offended. Why didn't you call us? They have an inflated sense of their own significance and self-importance. By the way, that's so easy for that to happen in a church, you know, where we group off into our own factions and tribes. We create divisions. We begin to represent and posture and politicize things. And wonder, hey, why aren't we getting the light of day? Be warned. What's Gideon's response to these guys? He doesn't talk about Yahweh's role. He doesn't say, well, I couldn't call you out because the Lord commanded me to go in with only 300 so that the glory would be his. He doesn't even name the Lord. He doesn't talk about God's directions. No, what does he do? Smooth talk. Verse 2. He said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, and Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? And their anger against him subsided when he said this. So he deprecates himself. He, he puts on this posture of humility. Oh, what am I compared to you? I couldn't do anything compared to you. Smooth-talking, pacifying. His answers are rooted in psychology more than theology. Friends, beware the smooth-talking leader. There are leaders who, you know, they come across as really humble. They posture themselves as being humble. They make you feel important. They make you feel like they're on your side. They're filled with flattery. They flatter you. But their smooth talk is ultimately self-serving. That brings us to the next mark of a bad leader we see in Gideon. Smooth talk, the next bad mark is sinful anger. Sinful anger. Look at verses 4 and following. So this tribe, Ephraim, they're a big tribe. He needs to keep them on his side. He knows that if he gets them riled up, he'll be in trouble. So he pacifies them, smooth talk. Now he's crossing over. Look at verse 4 and following. Gideon came to the Jordan, crossed over, he and 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Sukkot, this is a small Israelite town, please give me loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Ziba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Sukkot said, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? Notice Gideon's response. So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sukkot had answered. So he asked them for bread. They said, No, you don't have these guys yet. Why should we give you bread? And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Listen to that rage. The timid, fearful Gideon who just a couple of chapters ago was fearful and trembling and hiding in a wine press, is now filled with anger. Why were these guys not wanting to give him bread? Well, they're hedging their bets, right? They're doubtful. They look at this ragtag army, 300 guys who are exhausted and running. You're going to go and get Ziba and Zalmunna? I don't think so. And after we give you bread and then you're defeated, they're going to come back and decimate us because we helped you. So they're doubtful. They're hedging their bets. They're fearful. Gideon, who was once so afraid of going into battle, now has some tough talk for these guys. These are his fellow Israelites. And he says, I'm going to come back and flail your flesh. I'm going to break down your tower. Just you wait. I'm going to show you. Let's keep reading. Now Ziba and Zalmuna were in Karkor with their army. About 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for they had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Noba and Jogbeha and attacked the army for the army felt secure. So these guys are feeling secure. They're Kind of uh, casual. They're relaxing. They're not sure anything is going to happen. Out comes Gideon. Surprise attack. Ziba and Zalmunna fled. He pursued them. Captured the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna. Threw all the army into a panic. So he captures them. He now returns victorious. And look at how he treats the people of those two Israelite towns. Look at verse 13 and following. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Heres. And he captured a young man of Sukkot and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Sukkot, 77 men. And he came to the men of Sukkot and said, Behold, Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars with them, taught the men of Sukkot a lesson. In the original, it's quite striking how humiliating this punishment is. He absolutely humiliates and degrades them. Verse 17, what does he do in Penuel? He broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Remember when Gideon doubted? When he was uncertain? When God assured him saying, I will give my people victory through your hand. And Gideon was not sure testing God again and again. The Lord showed him so much grace and so much mercy. And here his fellow Israelites, these people of Sukkot and Penuel, they are doubtful. They're doubtful of Gideon. And Gideon responds by being merciless and cruel to them. How patient and gracious the Lord was with Gideon Look at how impatient and ungracious Gideon is with these guys. You know what's even more striking is what happens next. Verse 18. So these are the pagan kings now, the Midianite kings, the enemy kings whom he's captured. Notice how he talks to them. Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, as you are, so were they. Everyone resembled the son of a king. They flatter Gideon. You know, those guys look like kings, just like you. We killed them. And he said, verse 19, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna. And he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of the camels. Gideon has personalized the conflict. Do you see? You killed my brothers, the sons of my mother. This is like one of those movies, right? Movie plot. I'm going to get vengeance on those who killed my brothers. This is no longer about God's mission. This is about his own personal vengeance. And did you notice he takes the Lord's name in vain? He even swears that he would have shown these guys mercy if they had spared his brothers. Verse 19, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother, as the Lord lives. That's an oath formula. If you had kept them alive, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. He takes the Lord's name in vain to say that he would have been willing to disobey the Lord's instruction. He's supposed to put these guys to death. But he tells them, if you had left my brothers alone, I would not put you to death. I swear by the Lord. And if you are reading carefully in the final analysis, what has Gideon done here? He's treated his fellow Israelites worse than he is treating these Midianite kings. He's willing to show these Midianite kings mercy if they were sparing his brothers. But he showed no mercy to the Israelites who doubted him. Gideon has an anger problem. He's out for vengeance. He's out now on a quest, pursuing his own personal agenda. And Gideon then is a warning to us about leaders who behave in this way, leaders who are marked by sinful anger. You know, with such leaders, every issue is personalized. It's not about God's mission or obedience to God's word. It's not about what serves the church. It's about their own agenda. It's about their own personal desires and personal quests being fulfilled. Friends, this is such a danger when a man is in leadership. Remember, it's not just public talk and smooth uh, talking and people skills that matter. The Lord looks at the heart, the Lord weighs a man's heart, his motivations. You often see a man's heart when he doesn't get what he wants. You watch his behavior when he sets his heart on something and he doesn't get what he wants. You, you see the real man in his ability to submit to God's plans when his own plans don't work out. A leader must act in accord with God's word and God's commands not advancing his own personal agenda and then using his leadership to settle his own personal vendettas. Like the Lord himself, God's leaders must be slow to anger, abounding in patience and mercy and gentleness. And Gideon's example of sinful anger is also to warn, a warning to all of us, isn't it? It's a warning to all of us, especially those in authority. I want to speak to our elders here. Brothers, God has given us authority over His household, His church. He calls us to serve in the fear of Him. To lay down our lives for the flock. To serve faithfully and patiently. Not advancing our own agenda. I want to speak to others in authority. Husbands. You've been given authority in your household with your wife is your authority marked by sinful anger by outbursts of rage by harshness with your wife who has been created in the image of God and is a daughter of the king how dare you show anger to your wife I want to speak to parents God has given us authority over our children Is our parenting marked by sinful anger? By going into an irrational rage when we don't see our children do what we want? Often it's not just about teaching them to be obedient and gracious and learning to live as wise and followers of Jesus. Often our anger is just because we're not getting our way with them. If you're here and, and you're a boss at your workplace you're a Christian and God has placed you in authority uh, at your place of employment would those under you say that you are marked by sinful anger and smooth talk and all of these things brothers and sisters anger is such a dangerous sin it's one of those sins that we consider uh, as uh, one author said respectable sins right Yeah, we know adultery is bad Murder, we don't do that. But anger, yeah, everybody gets angry. That's okay. Like the Hulk, I'm always angry. Yeah? No, friends, it's deadly. And it will destroy us and it will destroy those who are around us. In his anger, Gideon even misuses the Lord's name. He takes the Lord's name in vain. He covers his behavior in this superficial show of spirituality as the Lord lives. And that leads to our third mark of bad leaders superficial piety. We've seen that they are smooth talkers. First, they are given to sinful anger. Second, and third, they're marked by superficial piety. Piety, religion, religious behavior that goes just skin deep. Look at verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Well, this is ironic, isn't it? The people have already forgotten who it was that saved them. If you go back to chapter 7 and verse 7, the Lord said, I will save you from the Midianites. And again and again, throughout chapter 6 and 7, the Lord keeps saying, I will give you victory. I will save you from their hand. He's going to work through Gideon, but he is the one who saves. And he even reduced the army because he said, I know your heart. I know that you're going to steal the glory. I know that you're going to say that my hand has done it. And here the people are already saying, you have saved us, Gideon. They've already forgotten. Yahweh's concern proves true concerning these people. And what's Gideon's response? They, they ask him to be king. They say, rule over us. Establish a dynasty. You and even your son and even your son's son will submit to your kingship. And Gideon responds and says, I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Sounds like a godly answer, right? Sounds like a faithful biblical response. Well, it's not the right answer, my friends. Because the right answer would have been, first to say, I haven't saved you from the hand of Midian. It was the Lord who gave them into my hand. And secondly, the right answer would have been, the Lord shall indeed appoint a king to rule over this people, over you. But the kingship belongs to the tribe of Judah as God has said in his word. No, instead, Gideon does this kind of fancy move, fancy rhetoric, smooth talk, bad theology. This is empty spiritual talk. Because in the end, you'll see his behavior is exactly the opposite. Before I show you why his behavior is exactly the opposite, let me just warn you. Again, especially for leaders, but for all believers, friends, it's easy to talk Christianese. It's easy to say the right spiritual things. But our practice, our behavior must match our words. Beware of anyone who speaks piously while living falsely. And beware of that danger yourselves. Beware of giving an appearance of spirituality, a veneer of spirituality, while your life and your practice is actually totally out of step with the Word of God. I've known a lot of people like this. And this is very common in Christian circles and even in the church. You know, I knew someone some years ago who was working for a church. And he was the master at this. Every word out of his mouth would be like perfect spiritual answer, you know. Hey, brother, what's your favorite movie? Oh, you know, I always like the Gospel of John. (laughs) Hey, brother, let's meet for breakfast on Saturday. Oh, no, I'm fasting. On Saturday mornings, I take the time to fast and pray. Hey, brother, where do you like to go for vacation? I like to go to the Holy Land. (laughs) You know, he dug into his life a little bit more and then he was exposed as a total and complete fraud. Living sinfully, defrauding others, this wicked, wicked life. And was eventually excommunicated from his church. Friends, that kind of sappy superficial spirituality is worthless in the sight of God, and it is dangerous for you. Watch out if you're living like that. If our behavior doesn't conform to God's clearly revealed commands. So we've seen bad leaders are marked by these things, this toxic mix of smooth talk, sinful anger, superficial piety. But they're all just the external symptoms of an underlying disease, you see. The primary issue with bad leaders is this underlying disease. These three kind of traits that we've seen are just symptoms. And it's the underlying disease that shows itself in those symptoms. That leads to our fourth mark, and most significant mark of bad leaders. We've seen smooth talk, sinful anger, superficial piety. Mark number four, selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. Do you remember, after all his fearful, wavering, After all his uncertainty, even testing the Lord, going back and forth, not trusting God's word. Finally, when it counted, Gideon is about to go into battle. He gets this army together. He obeys God's commands. The army is reduced to 300. They're about to go. And do you remember what he told them to say? Chapter 7, verse 18. For the Lord and for Gideon. A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And that's a hint of things to come right because the people now take it the other way around for Gideon they credit Gideon with the victory and they invite him now to establish a royal dynasty that he would rule over them as king and his son and his son's son and then Gideon gives them this response I will not rule over you my son will not rule the Lord will rule over you ah but notice what he does next Verse 24, And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. There's a smooth talk again. Let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. Oh, earrings on men is not something that just started in the 80s. They were doing it way back then. These Ishmaelites, the Midianites, apparently had gold earrings. So they strip off all these guys' gold earrings. And then what do the people say to Gideon? Verse 25, They answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of the Midian and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. That's an awful lot of gold. Do you know how much gold that is? That's about 20 kilograms of gold. And he takes the purple garments from the kings of Midian. What are the purple garments supposed to signify? Royalty. And so Gideon here takes unto himself the first symbol of royalty and kingship. He amasses gold and ornaments and purple garments. I will not rule over you, the Lord will rule over you, but just like a king, the gold is mine. Verse 27 And Gideon made an ephod of it, and he put it in his city in Ophrah, and all Israel hoard after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. What's the second thing that he's doing? You know what kings did in the ancient world? They were the sponsors of places of worship. And here Gideon is establishing a place of worship in his own backyard with this ephod. What was the purpose of the ephod? If you go back to Exodus chapter 28, if you look in the book of Numbers as well, you'll see that in Exodus 28 verses 28 to 31, the Lord established the ephod for the priests to wear. It was part of the priestly uh, clothing. And the priest would wear the ephod and on the ephod would be these stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel and these other special stones called the Urim and Tumim. And with that ephod, the priest would discern God's guidance and direction for his people. For God's people to know how to live, what to do, and they needed direction and guidance under the old covenant, God had given them his law, his word, he had given them the Torah. He had given them the priesthood and the tabernacle that the priests would discern God's will using this ephod and then they would lead God's people. But Now Gideon is setting himself and his household as the channel for God's guidance separate from the Torah, separate from the priesthood, separate from the tabernacle. He is establishing a way to know God's will apart from God's word. Where did you see that before? Well, that was there earlier in his life, wasn't it? Where he was constantly given to looking for something extraordinary, extraordinary signs, something special, something superstitious to discern the will of God. And now he establishes that in the nation. He gives them something extra to know God's will, and all Israel follows him and falls into the trap of this false worship and idolatry. Friends, beware of leaders who promise you special anointings, some supernatural, extraordinary experiences, who promise you some kind of a spiritual boost you up or charge you up, through extraordinary things rather than focusing your attention on the ordinary and simple means that God has provided for our growth the preaching of God's word, prayer, worship of God's saints and people, and fellowship with one another. And beware of again pursuing extraordinary signs and guidance apart from God's clearly revealed word. Beware of using language like, oh the Lord told me to do this or the Holy Spirit told me to do this or to do that, while you neglect God's clear and perfect word. His word is sufficient for us. Amen? But it gets worse with Gideon. So he amasses gold just like a king. He sponsors a place of worship just like a king. What does he do next? Verse 29. Jerubal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. Yet another symbol of royalty. Many wives and many sons. He has an entire harem, just like the kings in the ancient world. And if you had any doubt that Gideon is trying to establish himself as some kind of king, verse 31 confirms what he's doing. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son. So not only does he have these many wives, he also has a concubine who's basically a sex slave for him in this town called Shechem. She bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. What does that name mean? the name Abimelech means my daddy is the king so Gideon names his son my father is the king I mean imagine this guy must have been pretty popular right goes out to play with his friend hey what's your name my daddy is the king no what's, what's your name my daddy is the king that's my name I will not rule over you my son will not rule over you the Lord will rule over you but then I'm gonna name my son, my daddy's the king. What are we seeing with Gideon here? He, he, He wants to enjoy the benefits of kingship without the burdens of leadership. He takes to himself the perks of power without the checks of accountability. He likes authority, but doesn't want responsibility. God didn't choose him to be king. Gideon has appointed himself to rule. Gideon is doing what's right in his own eyes. Which you'll see becomes a pattern with the people of Israel as we go on in this book. They're doing what's right in their own eyes. While doing what's evil in God's eyes. Now Gideon's Life does not proclaim thy kingdom come. He is living in the world of my kingdom come. My will be done. And not only this. If you go back and read Deuteronomy 17, it it says concerning those who would be kings in the nation of Israel, there's a warning for those kings against amassing much gold and against multiplying many wives. They are to live in subjection to the law of God, and Gideon is doing the opposite because his pattern of kingship is not based on God's word. He is ruling just like any other Canaanite king in the ancient Near East. Israel, the people of Israel... Have become increasingly canonized, and it starts with the leaders. Isn't this just a shocking turn of events in this man's life? So many men, it's a very common thing actually. So many men are meek and timid and cowardly, yet you put them in power and they change completely. And, and Gideon's character arc is so interesting. He goes from being this fearful and timid guy to then being this courageous, faith-filled hero who took on the enemy against all odds, trusted in God, to then being a brutal, smooth-talking, self-serving, ruthless tyrant. So many are put into power, and they use their power to serve themselves rather than serving those that they've been appointed to lead. It must not be so among the people of God. Remember what Jesus says, Mark chapter 10, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Gideon says, My kingdom come, instead of thy kingdom come. I want to ask you this morning, is your life marked a mentality that says my kingdom come you can definitely talk the spiritual talk you know how to say the right things but where's your heart what do your actions say about whose glory you're living for what about us as a church brothers and sisters who receives the glory for what happens here? These are piercing questions. And we must examine our hearts. Come back to verse 28. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. You know how each time God delivers the people in Judges, they then have rest? This is very sad. This is the last time in the book that phrase appears. They don't have any rest anymore after this. And here also the cycle takes a change. Right? Usually you see that they are delivered, then they have rest, then the judge dies, and then they decline. Right? But this judge is different. With previous judges they went astray and declined after the judge died. Here they are wandering and sinning while the judge is still alive. In fact, the judge himself has gone into decline and is leading people astray. This cycle that we've seen in the book of Judges, it's a downward spiral. It's going round and round, going down into the drain are the people of God. And this is a new level of decline. Because earlier, it was the Canaanite gods of the nations that became a trap to the people of Israel. Here their own leader, Gideon, sets up an unbiblical, idolatrous worship center that becomes a trap to them. Of course, Israel has won. They defeated Midian. But the real enemy is not Midian, or Canaan, or Moab, or anyone else. No, the real enemy is within. Israel are their own worst enemy. So Gideon is flawed, broken, sinful. But somehow, in God's grace, he's still a restraint. Gideon's presence still restrains the people from going out into full and complete apostasy and Baal worship. You see that in verses 32 and following. Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abbey's rites. As soon as Gideon died, As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals. They prostituted themselves to these gods and they made Baal Berit their god. Berit means covenant. They've abandoned their covenant with Yahweh who entered into covenant with them and they've entered into covenant with Baal. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. You know, Gideon started well, but he ended poorly. And his failures later were the full-grown bad fruit of some of the seeds that we saw earlier in his life. Yet we see the grace of God even to Gideon. He's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 32. Someone said, oh, how come he's mentioned as a hero of faith? Well, Hebrews 11 never really says that they're heroes. They were all zeros who trusted in the real hero, God and his promises. And they received their commendation. Why is Gideon mentioned in Hebrews 11? Because in the moment that it mattered most, he trusted God. And his actions overcoming the Midianite army were the result of trust in God. And yes, he lapsed later, and we saw great sin in his life, but God's grace kept him from going completely bad. And after he died, the people did go completely bad, as bad as could be. You no, know, friends, as I read that, I'm terrified. I feel great. Fear for me, for our leaders, for our church. Because Gideon's decline, you see, didn't happen in hard times. The decline of Gideon and his people happened as a result of success. And often success in ministry can become a pathway to forgetting the one who gave you that success. Success. So let's beware and check our own hearts. And let's be sure that our eyes are always in the right place and on the right one, the Lord who gives us victory and to whom belongs the glory. Let us never say, ECC's kingdom has come. No, let it always be, O Lord, thy kingdom come. So these people, they go into full blown Baal worship after Gideon dies. They don't remember. That doesn't mean they just forgot. No, they cheaply discarded the Lord and turned away from God and the family of Gideon. And what happens next is devastating and tragic. The flaws that we see in Gideon's life are amplified in the next generation. Because in chapter 9, this time Israel's oppression does not come from outside enemies. But their oppression comes from within. From Gideon's son. I will not rule over you, my son will not rule over you, but now his son will rule over them. As you read chapter 9, I'm not going to read all of the text, it's a lot and our time is limited. What you'll notice in this chapter is that the name of God is not used even once. Uh, When you're reading your Bible, if you look at capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, all caps, LORD, That's a a kind of a way to indicate that God's name is indicated. His personal name, Yahweh. That's what we call Yahweh. That's not present a single time in chapter 9. Is God absent when all of this is taking place? Well, my daddy is king is all over chapter 9. This is the story of the guy whose name is my daddy is king. Someone asked me last week, they saw the sermon title for the week ahead, and they said, Pastor Aubrey, are you, calling my, are you calling God my daddy? I said, no, that's not about God, that's about this guy, Abimelech. In verses 1 to 6, you see the rise of Abimelech. All right, And his rise, immediately you'll see, is marked by smooth talk. He goes to his relatives, his mother's relatives in Shechem, and he says in verse 2, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all the 70 sons of Jerubbaal rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also, I'm your bone and your flesh. He smooth talks these guys. He said, oh, do you want the 70 leaders of Gideon's sons to rule over you? Uh, Why don't you just have one leader? Why don't we just have one king? Isn't that better? He's also using superficial piety here. Because if you read the Old Testament, you read Deuteronomy 17, it said that one from your own flesh and blood needs to be king. You don't appoint an outsider, a non Israelite, as king. And he's appealing to that. He's saying, I'm your flesh, I'm your bone. Smooth talking, superficial piety. And we see his selfish ambition. Look at this. Look at this violence. Look at what he does in verses 5. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah. And he killed his brothers, the son of Jerubbaal, 70 men on one stone. So they have this stone there and they're all brought in a line one by one and he slaughters them. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left for he hid himself. Then all the leaders of Shechem come together, all Bethmelow, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. And it's very interesting. You know, it talks about the leaders of Shechem many times in this chapter. Every single time it talks about them, the word for leaders in the Hebrew is Baal. The word Baal means Lord. So these guys are the lords of Shechem. They're called the Baals of Shechem. Friends, when you worship idols, you become just like those idols. You get identified with them. That's what happens with the leaders of Shechem here. And that's why they behave very foolishly as we'll see in this chapter. So an illegitimate son, Abimelech is an illegitimate son of Gideon. He's an illegitimate son of an illegitimate king. He's now king over Israel. Verses 1 to 6 tell us of his rise. Verses 7 to 21, you see a prophecy of his downfall. Uh, Jotham, the one son of Gideon who escapes, he goes up on a mountain and he tells a story. He tells a fable. This is a very interesting and funny fable if you read it. Uh, He says, you know, all of the trees are assembled and they're saying, okay, who shall be king over us? Who shall rule over us? And then they go to the olive tree and they say to the olive tree, you reign over us. And the olive tree says, I'm not interested. I'm busy making oil which is useful for men and for gods. Then they go to the fig tree and they say, it's slightly smaller in stature than the olive tree. Oh, fig tree, why don't you rule over us? Be the king of the trees. And the fig tree says, ah, I'm too busy making fruit, so I can't rule over you. Okay, now we'll go to the grapevine. grapevine, can you rule over us? They're going lower and lower. And the grapevine says, well, I'm busy making grapes which make wine, which refresh the heart of man, so I can't rule over you. They finally go to this bramble bush. What's a bramble bush? It's a thorny, woody little bush that does nothing. It's good for fire. That's all it's good for. And they say to the bramble bush, rule over us, won't you? And the bramble says, Okay, if you're anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. And this is a joke, because the bramble has no shade. The trees have shade. The bramble has no shade at all. What Jotham says is, This is what you've done with Abimelech. You have been foolish, and you have accepted one who is completely unqualified for leadership. Now, brambles are good fuel for fire, but poor kings They burn better than they rain. And he says, since this is what you've done, if if you've done it in good faith, if this was not self-seeking, then sure, enjoy the kingship of Abimelech. But if your heart was not right, let fire come from him and devour you, and let fire go from you and devour him. It's a curse. And then in verses 22 to 53, the rest of the story, you see that curse play out. In three years, Abimelech rules for three years. Where's God during these three years? They grow totally dissatisfied with his leadership. They get disillusioned with the guy that they made king. They realize that he's nothing but a bramble. And then this other guy arises named Gaal. And in verse 28, look at what he says Who is Abimelech? And who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbaal? Is not Zebul his officer? serve the men of Hamor the father of Shechem but why should we serve him would that this people were under my hand then I would remove Abimelech I would say to Abimelech increase your army and come out and then all of the leaders go after this guy they follow him they go and celebrate with him in the temple and then they get drunk and they curse Abimelech but there's this treacherous officer Zebul who's Abimelech's deputy and he hears what they're saying and he reports it to Abimelech and so Abimelech comes out in war He destroys Gaal. He destroys the opposition party. Gets rid of them. But he continues. No, he cannot take the insult. He goes into an insane rage. And here you see the sinful anger that you saw in Gideon amplified. Abimelech becomes completely unhinged. Look at verses 42. On the following day, so this is after Abimelech has defeated his opponents, the people went out into the field and Abimelech was told... He took his people, divided them into three companies, set an ambush in the fields, and he looked and saw people coming out of the city. He rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city, while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. He fights against the city. He captured the city, killed the people who were in it, and raised the city and sowed it with salt. Utter destruction. And then the leaders hear of this and they're panicking. They and a bunch of people flee into this tower to hide. Abimelech hears that they're in this tower. And he comes up with this plan. He goes running, gets wood, lays wood at the base of the tower, tells everybody, follow after me. They surround the tower with wood. And he lights it up and burns them to the ground. Remember the curse that Jotham prophesied? Fire will come out of him and consume you. That's fulfilled. The people of the tower of Shechem died, verse 49, about thousand men and women. But that's not enough for this angry, selfish, bloodthirsty king. In his bloodthirsty rampage, he just continues on to the next town. He went to Thebes, verse 50, and encamped against Thebes, and captured it. So there's another strong tower. Everybody flees into the tower. And he says, hey, the plan worked the first time. Let's do it again. He begins to come near to burn it. And one woman happens to have this millstone, she must have been pretty strong to be able to lift that millstone, she just drops it from the roof of the tower, bam, crushes his skull. Verse 53, a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. Even in his death, while his skull is crushed and his brains are spilling out, he's most concerned about his reputation. And he wants to make sure that he's not remembered as the guy whom the lady killed. But that's exactly how he's remembered, because we're told the story like that. (laughs) And the men of Israel saw Abimelech was dead, and everyone departed to his home. Friends, the kingdom of men inevitably ends in division and self-destruction. And here you see this poetic justice, don't we? Abimelech killed 70 brothers on one stone. Here he is killed by a single stone that lands on his head. It's Kind of an outworking of Genesis 3.15. The serpent's head is crushed. And the question is, the name of God isn't used here. All this stories about my daddy is the king. Where is God in the midst of it? The answer, my friends, is that he is on his throne. The true king of his people and of all creation. Sovereignly working throughout this episode to bring about his perfect justice. You may have missed verse 23. Look at, what, look at the one who is bringing this conflict about. Verse 23, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech so that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubal might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech their brother who killed them and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. God is sovereign even over the evil spirits. And here the evil spirit does his bidding. God does not sin or do any evil but this evil spirit in God's sovereign plan brings conflict between Abimelech and these men. And verse 56, the author leaves us in no doubt what has happened. Verse 56, Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, son of Jerubal. God's hand and his justice might be hidden from our eyes for a time. For these three years, people may have been wondering, where is the Lord? You might have been wondering, reading this chapter, where is God? But He is always sovereignly working to accomplish His purpose. Even now. And one day, His perfect justice will come. That's of great importance for us to know. Evil will not continue forever. God will bring justice in this world. But at the same time, we ought to remember, you know, it's easy for us to look at this and look at the sins of Abimelech and of Gideon. It's often hard to see our own sins. There's something of Gideon and Abimelech in all of us, isn't there? That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 this is our principle for interpreting judges, one of our principles that these things were written down as examples for us so that we might not desire evil as they did. In every single one of us there is this impulse not to say thy kingdom come, thy will be done but to say my kingdom come, my will be done. Friends, we need saving. Because the evil is not just out there. It's in you. We need a savior. We need a king. We need a savior and a king who will not serve himself. But who would serve and save us. We need one who would not rule in evil authority. But who would rule over us in the fear of God. And write God's law on our hearts. And thanks be to God that he has given us just such a savior and king, our Lord Jesus Christ. He was not a bramble bush presuming to be king. No, but he was the most stately tree of the forest, the king of kings. Unlike Gideon, he had every right to say, I will rule over you. I am the lion of the tribe of Judah, the son of God. You see Satan tempting him saying all these kingdoms shall be yours. Well they already belong to him. He is the king and lord. But our Lord Jesus Christ he veiled the glory of his kingship. He took upon himself the burden of his people. He did not accumulate treasure to glorify himself. No he laid aside the riches and treasures of heaven and humbled himself for you and me. Our Lord Jesus did not come with smooth talk. He did not come to be self-serving. No, he humbled himself to be a servant and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He says again and again, I have come not to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. He did not lead us astray into sin, but he sought us out and died for us while we were still in our sins. He did not punish and discipline us, flail our flesh with thorns and briars, but he took upon himself a crown of thorns. He was flailed and whipped mercilessly with the punishment that you and I deserve, and by his stripes we are healed. He did not burn us to the ground in his anger. But he endured the fire of God's wrath for us. He did not pursue us unto death. But he died on a cross. So that we might be forgiven. That we might be made new. That we might be made righteous. And that we might enter his eternal kingdom forever. Friends this king. Risen from the dead. Ruling from his throne. Stands before you today with blood stained hands. And calls to you. Come to me. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden. And I. Will give you rest. Who's your king? Let's pray. Heavenly Father we thank you. For so, so great a savior. And so great a king. Our Lord Jesus Christ. May we not be those who say, my kingdom come. But in and through Christ, may we cry out, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. In Jesus' name, amen.